0: Well, good morning. Great to uh, great to be with you again today. Do you think about the class during the week, or are you so focused on Monday and Thursday and each day? Isn't it funny how you kind of get your life sort of gets segmented? And if you see somebody from church like at the grocery store, it's like I think I know them. But our lives are so segmented, if we don't have a context to go with it, it's like, you know, did we go to school together or something? No, I sit by you every Sunday in church. (laughs) Oh, boy. A young man named Kevin Tunnell was convicted of manslaughter and drunken driving uh, back in 1982 at the time he was 17 years old and the woman he killed was only 18 years old and her family sued him for one and a half million dollars but they settled for nine hundred and thirty six dollars as long as it was paid a dollar at a time every week for 18 years one year for every life for every year of their daughter's life. So the judge agreed to this somehow, and as a result, for 18 years, Tunnel made the check out every Friday, which was the the day that that she died, and um, the family deposited this money dollar by dollar into this um, uh, scholarship fund, I think, or something like that, for 18 years, from 1982 to the year 2000, every single Friday, 936 payments the family had to take him to court four times because he uh he got so so conflicted within himself over having to remember the fact that he did this and this is the whole point the family said they want him to remember that he did this and they um they said it's not about the money it's about penance And the mother said, quote, we want to receive the check every week on time. We will go back to court every month if we have to. I think it was uh, in a Max Lucado book, in fact, I'm pretty sure it was, that I first read this story, and it was probably Lucado that asked the very penetrating question, is 936 payments enough? Not for tunnel to pay, but for the family to receive. In other words, once that's done, How's the family going to, is the family going to say, great, we're done, moving on? Or is there still going to be that bitterness that was there initially? It'd Be kind of interesting to ask the family uh, since that time, since the year 2000, it's been, what, more than 20 years now, have you been able to put this to rest? Put yourself in the family's position for a second. How much is enough? Uh, because every one of us, has had somebody who, who has done too much to us. For that family, it was this young man who drank too much. For you, it may be that someone took something from you because they spoke too much or too harshly or demanded too much or neglected too much. Whatever it was, think about the person in your mind that has hurt you. We've all got them. A lot of times, it's family, because family has the the uh, the privilege of proximity. You might say, every day, and who you are at home is who you are. I mean, we can you know we can get all good and nice and fixed up for church, and we will and we'll watch our words and we'll be very careful about what we say out in public, especially here. But go home. And what are things like, you know, when you first wake up? What are things like when you spill the milk? That's who we really are. Family has an inside track into the true us. And sometimes that's great and sometimes that's not. Who is it that's hurt you? Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a sibling. Uh, a neighbor or even your child, your adult child. Maybe it was a former spouse. Maybe it was a boss. We live in a world of sinners, and sinners sin, including us. This is a world that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You know, not even the Son of God, the perfect, flawless, innocent Son of God got through this world unscathed. He was, to quote Isaiah, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How do you forgive when we live in a context of people and relationships that have betrayed us? Let's turn together to the book of Philemon. Philemon, we are working our way through a single message from each book of the Bible, And we've made it all the way through the Old Testament, through the Gospels, through the book of Acts, and now we are at the very last book of the Apostle Paul. It's not the last book he wrote, but it's the last book we've got recorded here in the New Testament. His shortest book and by far his most personal book, the book of Philemon. Remember, Paul, on his missionary journeys, wrote uh, 13 books, and on his first journey he wrote one book, Galatians. His second journey, he wrote two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, he wrote, guess how many? Three books, you know, one, two, three, uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. And then in his imprisonment in Rome, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. When he was a prisoner in Rome, the word of God still was effective through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes to Philemon. Uh, Edward Gibbon wrote this great book, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's more than a book. It's volumes of books. And in it, he estimates that half of the population of the empire at the time, about 60 million people, were slaves. Imagine that. Half. What if half of our country were slaves? There was a time, of course, in our history where we had a lot of slaves in, in the United States, but it was, it was sort of a different, uh, a different context than it was in Rome. In Rome, the slaves had rights. In Rome, the slaves were just sort of demoted um, um, citizens, and you could buy your freedom, and there was a whole lot more that was good about slavery in Rome than the, what we think about when we think of a slavery, particularly in America. But when a slave would run away, then it was different. Then that slave forfeited a lot of rights, and if if the slave was caught and returned to the master, the master had three choices that he could do for this slave. The slave could be given extra work, which would be probably the best of all uh, options. The slave could be branded, like physically branded, that they were a runaway, or the master could take the slave's life, could kill the slave for running away. By law, the slave had only one hope of being reinstated to its, to its previous position, and that's if, if a friend of the master wrote a letter to intercede on behalf of the runaway slave, and that is what the book of Philemon is. The book of Philemon is Paul writing to Philemon on behalf of Philemon's runaway slave named Onesimus. Well, let's look at the first few verses here and get into this wonderful story that gives us one of the most beautiful pictures of forgiveness. You know, when we think about forgiveness, we typically want to rush to the book of Romans or to Galatians or to other books like Colossians that talk about, you know, the doctrine of forgiveness and why we should forgive but Paul in Philemon teaches it in the context of relationships because that is where it really comes down to brass tacks. Verse one, let's look at this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." As I've mentioned, there are three players here. There's a few that are already mentioned here. Philemon, of course, is the key player, Paul is a key player, and these others are probably uh, Aphia and Archippus is probably Philemon's wife and perhaps son, because it says, your house. And notice, the church meets in their house. So this is a guy with some means. He's got a house big enough for the church to meet in. And we aren't told here in this uh, book, but we are told in the book of Colossians that Philemon and Onesimus were from Colossae. So we know that Philemon lived in the town of Colossae, and the church that received the letter of Colossians probably met in Philemon's house because it says the church meets in your house. So these key players, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, and they all come from different backgrounds. Paul, of course, is advanced in Judaism. Uh, Philemon is a wealthy Gentile, and Onesimus is a runaway slave. And it's kind of neat to see these three different layers working together because it gives really life to Paul's statement that in Christ, he says in Galatians, "...in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ." And it was this unity that is the basis of Paul's appeal here. So let's look at what he says here in verse, beginning in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul writes, the hearts have been refreshed. Literally, you may have a note in the margin here that says inward parts. Literally, the word is bowels, which is why you kind of understand why they would translate it heart, because bowels isn't quite as palatable to our uh, to our English translation but it's the same idea. You know when you when something is gut-wrenching, you can think of it sort of in that metaphor. If something's gut-wrenching, you're talking about very emotional. That's the idea. That you have refreshed the deep emotions of the of the Christians, of the saints. And so Philemon has this reputation of being a loving person, of bringing joy to the body of Christ, of comforting people, so much so even on an emotional level. The deepest feelings of people have been refreshed through you, Philemon. So he's sort of setting Philemon up here in the sense of setting the context of, you know, you've been a wonderful addition to the body of Christ because you are such a loving person. If you've got the new international version, you have it in verse 6 that Philemon might be, quote, active in sharing his faith. Typically, we hear that phrase and we think evangelism. You know, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Great! Let's work, you know, hit the street with the four spiritual laws. But that's not what really Paul is saying. He doesn't mean that you you would be active in evangelism, but as the new uh, international, I'm sorry, as the new American standard translates it, that you that you would have that the fellowship of your faith may be effective. In other words, that that your fellowship with other Christians would be effective. So sharing of your faith in the sense of sharing your love with other people, which fits the context a whole lot more than s- somehow putting evangelism in here. He's saying I'm praying that that your that the reputation that you have is going to be very effective and for what he's about to mention, it's going to have to be Because Paul is about to appeal to Philemon's loving heart that he might apply that love to a new brother in Christ, the runaway slave Onesimus. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, therefore, notice the therefore, therefore, in light of all this, you loving brother, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake... I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Onesimus evidently had run away From Colossae, run away from Philemon, and had made his way to Rome. If you were going to try to hide as a runaway slave, Rome would be a great place. If you go to Rome today, at the southern end, I think, of the Capitoline Hill, they were doing some construction there and they unearthed some first slash second century apartments called insula. And there's just these apartments that were found and they left them because they're beautiful examples of the apartments. That were in the time of the Apostle Paul. In fact, when it talks about Paul being in his own rented quarters, he would have been in one of these insula, one of these apartments that literally honeycombed Rome. In fact, in one of Paul's letters, he talks about someone who tried to search for Paul throughout Rome and finally rejoiced when they found him. Because, it, I mean, it's like, if you wanted to hide, Rome would be a great place to hide. But somehow, in the providence of God, the Apostle Paul, who was imprisoned, In one of these honeycomb hideouts, Onesimus makes his way to Paul, this runaway slave who desperately needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. God and his sovereignty brought him together with Paul who was under house arrest. How did that happen? We don't know. But it did happen and Paul says that Onesimus is my son whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, Paul led Onesimus, this runaway slave, to Christ while Paul was imprisoned. And, the, um, and so now, Onesimus is sort of a play on words. You might have in your margin, Onesimus, verse 10, is useful. It just says useful. Mine just says, example, useful. Meaning, that's what Onesimus' name means, is useful. And so Paul makes a play on that word. It's a common slave name. I mean, you just call your slave, hey, useful, come over here. Make yourself useful. He says, who is useless to you, in other words, because he ran away, but now is useful both to you and to me. So, Onesimus has one who intercedes for him. There's at least three parallels here in the book of Philemon that we can draw from about the subject of forgiveness which is really the theme of the whole letter. But the first is a parallel of application, um, and it's a great place to begin. And here it is. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. Where do we get the word master from it? Well, if you look back up at verse 3... Notice it says at the end of verse 3, Lord Jesus Christ. The word for Lord in the original language, kurios, can be translated different ways depending on the context. It can be Lord with a big L. It can be Lord with a little L. And it, it could mean Master, which is sort of Lord with a little L. So it could be Master. It could also mean Sir. So that it's just it's a title of respect, but then ultimately it can be the title of you know, our Lord Jesus Christ. But Philemon, hearing the word kurios uh, applied to Jesus, would also have thought, hmm, I'm a kurios. I'm a master. And there is this subtle connection in Paul's language between Master Jesus and Master Philemon. Master Philemon, why don't you be like Master Jesus? Like Onesimus, we all need to be forgiven by our master. That's because we've all sinned. We are all like Onesimus. We have all run away from our master. Isaiah says that we're like sheep that have gone astray. Some of us have run astray, and we haven't just merely wandered off the path because we're chewing grass that leads us off the cliff. But sometimes we will bolt off the cliff in our rebellion against God. We want to go our direction. And we need forgiveness. We have nothing in ourselves to return to him. If we return to him, we are worthy of death, just like Onesimus was. And it could be done legally. But thankfully, Onesimus had one who interceded for him. What Paul was doing for Onesimus reflects the infinitely greater intercession that we have when Jesus, as Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Formerly, we were useless Think about your former life before Christ. Hmm. Useless for God. But now, now by God's grace and only by his grace, we are useful. Grace gives us the whole basis of forgiving others. So Paul says, you know, by the way, I could sort of command you to do this because I'm like Apostle Paul. But he doesn't say that. He says, I could pull the apostle card. I've got the ace in my pocket, by the way. And he'll mention that a couple other times. <laughs> I love it. he kind of goes on. And he, he just sort of starts to pull out that apostle card, but then he sticks it back in a couple times. But um, he says, rather than command you, I am appealing to you. And, I, and he, I like it. He calls himself, in verse 9, Paul the aged. He's only in his 60s here, and he calls himself old. So, I, you know, hey. We're not all far from that, either on the front side or the back side of 60. So we're all sort of aged, I guess. And so maybe this can apply to all of us. But anyway, he appealed to him based on love. He appeals to him based on love. And verse 12, this is the appeal. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. So pause there for a second. He says, I've sent him back to you in person. In other words, Philemon got this letter because Onesimus came holding it out. This was, th- the letter of Philemon was the appeal to the master who could put him to death. And it's a beautiful picture of the power of scripture, because the scripture is the same thing for us. Just as the scripture of the book of Philemon was what, what Onesimus held out as the means by which he should be forgiven before the master who could put him to death, so the truth of the word of God is that for us, isn't it? We hold it out as well. Say, look, I've got one who died on my behalf, who appealed, who is appealing on my behalf. Even though I have need, I, I deserve like Onesimus to be condemned. I have one who will who will offer forgiveness, and that is Jesus. And he says, verse 12, I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Beautiful picture there. And this is how our God operates, isn't it? It's how he operates. He could force us to do the right thing, but he doesn't. He says, I hold it out to you, I appeal to you, and I'm leaving it in your hands to do the right thing. Notice something here that you'll, notice, that you'll see throughout the scriptures. When people run away from the will of God, God sends them back. Think of a few other instances. Hagar was mistreated by Sarah and ran away. God sent her back. Jacob ran away from Esau. God sent him back to face him. Moses murdered and ran out of Egypt. God sent him back to face Pharaoh. Uh, Elijah got all depressed and ran away from in the wilderness out of fear. God sent him back. Onesimus runs away from Philemon. God sends him back. And over and over we see that the way to deal with pain is not to run from it, but to face it. And if we won't face it, God will bring us to circumstances that force us to face it, not because he's mean, but because a loving God is going to do what's best for us. Face it and resolve it, or it will follow you over and over into your next set of circumstances. Now, keep your finger here in Philemon and turn back to the left, if you would, to the book of Colossians. Let's look at a couple of verses there that are relevant. Colossians chapter 4. The book of Colossians and the book of Philemon were written from the same inkwell with the same pen and delivered on the same trip. Colossians was delivered by a man, I think his name is Tychicus. They're in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. But Philemon was delivered by Onesimus. So Tychicus and Onesimus, Traveling from Rome to Colossae and Onesimus is clinging to that letter that uh, Philemon, because that is his ticket. Colossians, Colossians chapter four, look at verse seven. Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow servant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. So, one of your number, that just doesn't mean a citizen of Colossae, but it also means a brother in Christ. Now, this letter of Colossians is being read in the church, and the church could be Philemon's house, because we're told in in Philemon that the church meets in your house. I have been to Colossae, to the ruins of Colossae. It's sort of a a multi-leveled area. It's not very big. Honestly, I'm trying to think the whole little tell of Colossae is not much bigger than the campus of our church. It's probably even smaller than that. But you've got an upper area, which is sort of the administrative area, and you've got this lower area, which was the residential area. And it's not that large. I'd say it's probably, you know, two- or three-football field size. The whole town of residential area of Colossae, at least within the walls, was there. And so the church is there. And so whether there was one church or two churches, however many, This would have been read in Philemon's house. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This is read in Philemon's house. Master, kurios, it's that same word, lord. Lords, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a Lord in heaven. You could have translated it that way. It's the same word, but they've translated it masters because obviously that fits the context better. But understand, Paul is making a connection here. All of you who have slaves, remember, you are a slave. You've got a master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, here it comes, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the kurios forgave you, just as the Lord, the Master, forgave you, so also should you. This was read in Philemon's house. Now turn back to Philemon. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. This would have rung in Philemon's ears, no doubt. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven. Here's the second principle. Like Philemon... We all have the need to forgive. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. No two people, especially no two Christians, should have any lasting bitterness between them. No two Christians should have any lasting bitterness between them. We all have the need to forgive. Some people collect stamps, some people collect antiques, and others, it seems, collect offenses. Have you, have you ever met somebody like this? Like you just, I mean, they just can't keep it in. You know, back in 1971, he wouldn't shake my hand. And you like remember that from 1971? one? Mm-hmm. Some people say, oh, I just don't have a great memory. And yet they can rattle off every offense that's ever happened. We have the need to Forgive. Um, I want to share a story that's sort of hard to share, and I'm going to try to do it without a lot of crying. Um, My dad is with the Lord now. He died a few years back and lived a a life that was a bit of a challenge uh, for me growing up. And uh, anyway, the last few years of his life, I worked Really hard to try to have a good relationship with him. And I thought by the time he died that it was good. I mean, I really did. And I was grateful, even gave thanks to God for my perception of how our relationship was. After he died, uh, I saw his will. And in his will, it specifically said something. I mean, he put it in his will. Something about me that he clearly that was clearly something that he felt had never been resolved in his will. And obviously that, that it deeply hurt me, deeply hurt me. And it's not so much that he would put it there sort of as the last sort of cheap shot, but it hurt me in the sense of, I thought everything was fine. Um, So let me just, let me just... But here, here's the redeeming part for me. Uh, what he was afraid... He was afraid I was going to say something bad at his funeral. And so he said, I don't want Wayne talking at my funeral. And uh, what I loved about that particular week that I read that that paragraph and his will was the exact same week that Ray Dubert asked me to speak at his funeral. I mean, obviously Ray had already gone. But he... Um, so I just took that as from the Lord, saying, you know what? It's okay. It's all right. And plus, now that, the Lord, that, that my father's with the Lord, I know he knows the truth. And so there's, there is a sense of, of resolution in my mind because God, God, whatever my father was struggling with that I was unaware of, that's resolved now for my dad. And so it's okay. But boy, at the time, that hurt it hurt. C.S. Lewis wrote one time, he says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. (laughs) See, forgiveness is hard work. Forgiveness is hard work. And I don't know where you are in your relationship with family, but let me just tell you, being on the receiving end, you don't want people to find out that there's something that you've got you know, against them after you're gone. And they may find out. Definitely don't leave it in your will. Because <laughs> they will find out about that. But I'm saying all that to say, Do the hard work that God gave Onesimus to do and go back to Philemon. Do the hard work that Hagar had to do and go back to Sarah. Do the hard work of resolving it now while you can so that there can be a memory, that your memory and your legacy can be one of integrity, especially with your family. I remember one time I was teaching in another church and this lady came up to me after the service. She like sort of waited till the very end where it was just the two of us. And she said, let me get this straight. That's how she started it. Let me get this straight. You're telling me that all anybody has to do to be forgiven of any sin they've done is to believe in Jesus Christ and they're forgiven? I said, that's what the Bible says. And she, she like got this close to me, looked look me in the face, and she said, I can't accept that. There are some things that just cannot be forgiven. And then she left. I was kind of glad she left. I thought, <laughs> I thought she might start take me down or something. But actually, before she turned around and left without answering me, I asked her, who is it that's hurt you so deeply? She never never responded. See, the problem with forgiveness is that the debt is real. Someone has taken from us and hurt us, and to forgive, we feel like we've got to give even more on top of what's already been taken. That's the hard work of forgiveness. It's not just saying, okay, you know, I forgive you. But you are digging down into the heart that's already hurting and, and giving forgiveness. The problem with forgiving is that it's hard. But you know what's harder? Not forgiving. Not forgiving, two things happen, the scripture tells us, as well as experience, but experience is not our uh, basis of truth. Scripture is. First is an an, an emotional thing. You remember the, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the the man that wouldn't forgive his uh, fellow debtor and uh, that he would be put into prison and the torturers would have his way with him until he paid back the debt and he says so shall my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart now that doesn't mean you're going to go to hell that's not what that means what it means is this is your emotional state until you forgive you will be tortured God will not give you peace in your heart until you forgive from the heart. There is an emotional fallout when we will not forgive. Second is spiritual. Jesus also taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if, forgive, if you uh, forgive others for their transgressions, your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew six fourteen and 15. God will not forgive your transgressions. Wait a minute, isn't that kind of why Jesus died on the cross? There are two two types of forgiveness, and I I hope that you know this, but if not, please listen to this. There are two types of forgiveness that the Bible teaches. The first is eternal, and that is you've got sins that are going to keep you out of the presence of God forever. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, present, future, in fact, at the time that Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were future. All of them have been paid for, and you will go to heaven. So what does Jesus mean, God won't forgive your sins? That's the second type of forgiveness, and that's relational. And that's the second fallout from not forgiving others, is our relationship with God is tainted. We're not in fellowship. So when he says, your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgression, that means you're out of fellowship with God until you forgive your brother from the heart or your sister and when you do then you're back in fellowship with God so what happens when we refuse to forgive we're the losers we struggle emotionally we struggle spiritually until we forgive others like Philemon we all have the need to forgive so understand that what you're doing when you forgive somebody is like what Lou Priolo says he says, when you grant forgiveness to somebody, you're making a promise to that person. You're promising not to bring the offense up again. It's like one woman, <laughs> uh, she had done something terrible against her husband 15 years earlier, I think, and she says, I know my husband's forgiven me because he tells me every week. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not license to remind somebody, you know, by the way, I've forgiven you, remember? (laughs) Forgiveness is a promise not only to not bring it up again, but it's also a promise not to dwell on it yourself. Now, it's going to come to mind. What do you do with it? What do you do with it when it comes to mind? You immediately bring theology into the picture. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that, that that hurt. I know that that memory is there. I know that, that I can never go back. This person can never go back and fix what was done wrong. But let me just remember, I needed forgiveness too by my master. I needed to be forgiven. And, and I need to forgive others if I'm going to stay in fellowship with God. And so you choose not to dwell on it. It isn't easy, but it is doable. It's the hardest but the most important Thing is, not to dwell on it yourself. This is the very question that Peter asked when he came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? That's pretty gracious. Seven times. I mean, if somebody did the same thing to you six times in a row, you think, okay, you got one more. (laughs) How many times, Lord, do I have to forgive and then you'll bless my grudge? Jesus, Jesus says, no, not even seven times, 70 times seven times. In other words, there's no limit. You could ask the question, it, the Lord could ask the question to you, how many times would you like me to forgive you and, and you stay in fellowship with me? Well, the answer to that is forever. Then that's the answer for others as well. That's Jesus' point. To what extent do we forgive others? Jesus' answer is, to what extent Have you been forgiven? In other words, forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings. How does God forgive? In Hebrews 8, it says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Remember their sins no more? How does God forget? Well, does he get amnesia? An omniscient God doesn't get amnesia. And therefore, he knew about your sins even before they were born. That's how Jesus died for them. So what, what does it mean? It means that he doesn't remember in, a, in such a way to count it against you. So you're going to remember what people have done, but don't remember in a way to count it against them. Jay Adams wrote, If forgiveness were merely an emotional experience, we would not know that we were forgiven. What does God do when he goes on record saying that our sins are forgiven? God makes a promise. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. Now, understand, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. Don't confuse it. Forgiveness is given. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is given. Reconciliation is a two-way street. But but forgiveness is a one-way street. That's something you can do whether or not they respond. So, like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. And there's one more principle, and we see it in verse 15, and this one for me is so helpful, so practical. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, For perhaps for this reason, he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Notice the contrast here. For a while, in verse 15 and 16, for a while and forever. See that? Verse 15, he was separated for a while, verse 15, that you would have me back forever. Those two perspectives are important. Uh, it gives us a, uh, a perspective, I think, that takes us beyond just the here and now. And here's the third principle. We gave one for Onesimus, we gave one for Philemon, but here's one that Paul gives us. Like Paul, we must factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. Like Paul, we must factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. See, Paul is suggesting to Philemon, you know, there may be more going on here than just a runaway slave. Maybe God allowed this to happen so that when you got Philemon back, he'd be more than a slave. He would be a brother. See, Paul sees the bigger picture going on. And when we factor God's sovereignty into our pain, oh, we can forgive a whole lot easier. Remember the climax of really the book of Genesis, certainly the life of Joseph, is when Joseph's brothers come to him, hat in hand, expecting to be killed, and Joseph calms them down and says, it's okay, you meant it for evil. Let's just acknowledge that. We'll call it what it is. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result that many lives would be saved. Joseph was able to look past the offense at the sovereignty of God working through the offense to bring about something that would not have happened another way. Paul says the same thing to Philemon. And I just want to challenge you, whatever it is that has deeply hurt you in life, factor God's sovereignty into it. It's biblical. It's not just therapeutical. It's biblical to do that to realize they meant it for evil. Sometimes it was maliciously, sometimes it was just you know haphazardly, but we've had evil done to us. When you factor God's sovereignty into that, all of a sudden you can go, you know what, Lord, I can let this go because I know you're in control. And though I can't see how, I'm going to trust that your sovereignty is somehow over all this. I can think about painful moments in my life Growing up in broken homes has given me one of the things that I've taken from that is a passion for Kathy and I to do the very best we can that our daughters would not have to experience that. Doesn't mean we're perfect, we're not perfect, but not having a certain thing growing up, God has sovereignly given both Kathy and me the passion to provide that with them to the next generation. Um, and I don't know if you've ever, like, lost a job before, but I have, and the pain that came about through that, God has shown uh, in those circumstances as well as a number of other circumstances, what seems like such a difficult thing at the time actually was a springboard, I mean a diving board, maybe a trampoline (laughs) to the future that I could not have anticipated if I had not gone through it. And so I praise God for those times, even though they were very painful. I see God's sovereignty at work. Our challenge a lot of times is we are, we haven't hit the trampoline yet. We are just trusting. But here's the good news. You can trust. You can trust just by looking at your past life. Look at the life behind you and how God has sovereignly used big disappointments to get you where you are today. And he's using today's disappointments for the future. Like Paul, we've got to factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. Boy, that's such a helpful principle, and I'm thrilled that the Apostle Paul included that here. You can forgive somebody a whole lot easier when you realize that there's bigger things going on than the dead-end street of your pain. That pain is not a cul-de-sac. In the sovereignty of God, it is a highway that God's got you on. Well, look at how Paul ends the book here, verse 17 to the end. If if then you regard me as a partner, <laughs> in other words, you do, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, and notice how the apostle card starts to get pulled out here. Not to mention that you owe me even your, your own self as well. <laughs> I love that. It's like, by the way, you, know, you came to Christ because of me. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. And <laughs> I'm sorry to keep stopping, but this is so almost humorous because this is being read out loud. How would you like this to be read out loud you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul's got confidence that you're going to do the right thing, Philemon. Philemon's there like, well, I guess I better do the right thing since everyone's heard this. <laughs> Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know you will do even more than I say. Verse 22, at the same time also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. In other words, I'm coming. Isn't that great? On top of all this, by the way, the real apostle card is coming. And uh, I'm coming. And I don't think this is done in any malicious way. I'm having a little fun with it. But the reality is Philemon realized that he had obligation by God to do the right thing here. And I believe, and Paul believed, that Philemon did the right thing. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, come back to him, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If you were to read the end of Colossians, you would see pretty much person for person each of these also mentioned there. So it's neat to see these books written at the same time. And uh, Paul very likely did go to Colossae about a year later after he was released from, um, from his house arrest in Rome. And I mentioned Mark. The reason I mentioned Mark is because you remember John Mark. John Mark is one who failed. And what else did Mark do? Mark ran away, and God brought him back through the good graces of Barnabas, his cousin. And Mark was was became useful to Paul. In fact, if you were to uh, you don't have to turn there, but maybe jot a note. Second Timothy four eleven. Paul uses the same word, in fact, I looked at it It is exactly the same word in the Greek for the word useful, for Mark. Mark is useful for me, 2 Timothy four eleven. The same word that he used of Philemon, of uh, Onesimus. So it's kind of a neat connection there. Mark has come around, in other words, Philemon. Uh, Onesimus can come around. Go ahead and forgive him. There's a book that uh, Corey Ten Boom wrote, wrote a lot of great books, but uh, this one's called Tramp for the Lord, and she's got a, uh, an, a wonderful account in here that was not so wonderful for her to experience, but is wonderful in hindsight to, uh, to read, and it's uh, in the chapter that's called Love Your Enemy, and I'm going to read a quote from it, and then i want to read the, uh, her story. It's not, it's not that long. The quote is this, those who nursed bitterness, now, you know Corey Ten Boom. she was, uh, her family lived in Amsterdam area, there in Harlem, just outside of Amsterdam, in the Second World War. They had the hiding place, they housed Jews, they were discovered, her family was put in uh, Nazi concentration camps, and her family, to a person, died, except for Corey. And so Corey has dealt with the, the hatred and the unforgiveness that she had toward the Nazis. After she was released, miraculously, and the war was over, she went about talking about the grace of Jesus Christ and her experience and how God brought her through it all. So that's the context. She writes, Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that as well. So here's the... Uh, here's the uh, her story, and I'm actually let's see, she she got it in a couple different places. She originally wrote it in a guide guidepost um, publication, but she writes it was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him, a balding, heavyset heavyset man in a gray overcoat. Um, "'a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. "'One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. "'The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap "'with its skull and crossbones. "'Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. "'The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, "'the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes "'in the center of the floor, "'the shame of walking naked past this man. "'I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, "'ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin.' Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face-to-face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk he said. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Great question. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand-held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, and I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that if we do not forgive those who have injured us, Jesus says, neither will God forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand, but you supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and this healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Have you ever had to do anything like that? Have you ever had anybody had the guts to actually ask for forgiveness? When's the last time somebody asked you to forgive you? Those are rare moments, aren't they? I hope they're not rare in your experience that you would ask for forgiveness, because we often need it. You know, forgiveness is not only the gift that we give. It is the gift we give ourselves, because it gives us the gift of peace of mind. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. And like Paul, we must factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father, forgiveness begins with you, with your great grace reaching out to us through your Son, Jesus, giving us what we did not deserve, forgiveness, a second chance, the promise of heaven, when what we did deserve was death. Thank you for the grace of Christ. And thank you also for the strength that you provided Corey that day and the strength that you give each of us as we also, like Philemon, need to to forgive others, those onisimuses that have sinned against us without cause very often. And we are standing there forgiving simply by an act of our will and trusting that the emotions will follow sometime. Thank you for your sovereignty that oversees all of our life experiences and that we can rest in your control. Thank you that we can look forward to that day that we can be in heaven, perhaps even with those that we have deeply offended and who have deeply offended us, and know that one day all of that will be gone, all of of the bitterness and the bad memories and the tears and the crying and the pain, and we will be able to bask in your glory and in your grace as recipients and as givers of forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.